and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Dr. Marisa Ishikawa, who is the second violinist of the Carpe Diem String Quartet based in Columbus, Ohio. She is also a co-founder of Austin Camerata, based in Austin, Texas, as well as the Opus One Chamber Music School, based in Houston, Texas. And we'll be talking about cooking and baking, particularly bread making. Welcome, Marisa. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Patty. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's always so fun to see you. We obviously met each other really through Matt Lammers, past guest of the podcast. You guys are dating. And yes. <laughs> it's like a power couple of violinists. And oh, thank you. <laughs> That's really sweet. (laughs) (laughs) And also such fountain pen enthusiasts. So of course, since Matt's episode, I've gone down the deep end. What's it called? Down the rabbit hole. Yes. I've gone down the rabbit hole of fountain pens. And it's all because of Matt, which is also all because of Paul Cantor, apparently. Yes. So thank you so much, Paul Cantor. (laughs) I have a big bill for you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) We get together sometimes as in Marisa, Matt, and I, and also Alexander past guests of the podcast as well and have little pen clubs together and we just talk about the pens and the pros and cons of the it can get so nerdy really quickly so but so fun it's so when, fun yeah yeah especially when you're looking at pens that mm-hmm. you want to buy yes but haven't tried them yet right and then one of us has that pen right then you can say oh that's how it feels oh i really like it okay right. i guess i can justify buying this now yeah. yeah yeah and i also find it's fun because we all have different price points or areas so like I try to do this more budget pens but then like someone like Matt will really shell out for a really good pen and so it's just kind of fun to compare like what's still a good pen within these price points exactly and what's amazing with him too is his patience (laughs) where he'll know what he wants and Mm -hmm. then he'll scour for it and wait until somebody sells it or you know endless pen has a flash sale or something and then he gets it yeah and it's awesome so I don't have that level of patience Unfortunately. <laughs> well, I think I'm the same too, which is why I go for the budgets. So. <laughs> but regardless, I hope one day that we can all come together on the podcast and have a little fountain pen club. Yes, I will be there. So let okay. me know when. Okay, sure. So what's your most insane performance story? Okay, this happened to me during my master's in Austin. I went to University of Texas, Austin. And it was also the first time that I started really gigging and being a freelance musician. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know what questions to ask or what are some good practices to protect myself when going in to do a performance. And I got asked by a classmate of mine, oh, I have this gig that I'm contracting for. It's an hour, just background music. Would you like to do it? And I said, okay, yeah, definitely. I can do the time. Pacing's great. I'll be there. What do you want to play? And she said, well, it's just background music, so don't worry about it. I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to pick up some classical quartets. It'll be sight readable. You'll be fine. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, great. This was about maybe two months before this performance was supposed to happen. This gig, this background music gig was supposed to happen. And so the days go by and it's the day before the gig. And I haven't heard anything like Mm -hmm. no details, no, here's your music, no confirmation. So I reach out and I just say, hey, just wanting to make sure 
sure that this is still happening. Just let me know the address and I'll be there and you know what to wear. And I get all the details. She's really nice, really sweet. And I ask, do you want any help getting music? Because I can help do that. I'm happy to do that. She said, no, no, no. I've got it covered. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing, are you sure? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's fine. Okay, okay, fine. So I roll up to the gig and I'm the first one there. It's an outdoor performance and there's a little amphitheater there. And somebody comes and greets me and they say, thank you so much for coming. We're so excited for your recital. What? <laughs> and that was inside exactly what I said. And of course, I put on a smile and I say, yeah, me too. I'm very excited about this. Like and maybe they didn't know what they were, like maybe they misspoke by saying recital. Like Exactly. I just, you know, smile and nod. That's what I yeah, did. Yeah. And so they say, okay, great. We have all the seats set up here. Like people are going to have a little picnic and you'll be up here on the amphitheater stage and here are four <laughs> seats for you. And we're just so excited. How long is each half going to be? Oh my gosh. And so again, <laughs> smile and nod and just say, um, we're thinking 30 minutes per half, you know, sure. maybe 25 and then we'll have a little break and then we'll play again. Says, great. So inside I'm, my stomach has completely dropped. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm playing. I didn't know I was performing. Right. I thought it was background music. So the rest of the quartet comes and then the coordinator comes and I tell her, did you know that we're giving a performance? And it was just kind of this confusing, like, oh, well, maybe I just don't. It was very vague and very uh -huh. strange. She said, okay, it's fine. Like, we'll figure it out. We're all good players. We can do this. I said, what did you bring for music? And she said, well, I went to the library and I was looking for Mozart string quartets, but they were all checked out. So I got woodwind quintet transcriptions what? of Mozart string quartets. No! no. <laughs> but what was, what was ironic is, do you know who had the string quartets? You? I did. <laughs> I had checked them out from the library. Because we had had some kind of sight reading party, and of course, that's what I checked out. Yeah. And she said, I figured that would be okay. And one, woodwind quintet five instruments, string quartet four. Woodwind quintet transposing instruments, string quartet non-transposing instruments. Right. So we basically couldn't play any of them because wow. it would have been a disaster. Yeah. So I basically was like, I'm not going to read. I'm not going to try and do that because it's just not going to sound right. Did you bring anything else? And of course, this was also before the time that people were bringing iPads. We mm -hmm. could download things. from. Mm -hmm. I think it could have been a lot different nowadays because yeah. we could have easily said, we need Wi-Fi. We can download from IMSLP. This right. will be fine. Right. So, you know, disclaimer, we did not have that option. So she said, well, the only other things that I checked out were these two Puccini string quartet songs. Okay. That are maybe three minutes each. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't even remember exactly what it was. Something that I didn't recognize yeah. at all. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, so we just need to fill up time. So what are we going to do? It was like a, a section, B section, A section with a repeat. That's how the form was. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll do A section, repeat it. B section, repeat the B section. Then we're going to do a decapo and do the whole thing again. So we basically <laughs> triple the amount of time yeah. of this piece. And we'll do both of those pieces. We'll just, you know really extend them then we'll do an earlier break and then the violist and the cellist said I have some solo Bach ready I can do some of that and then we'll I don't know play them again and so we said okay we at least have a plan none of us know how these pieces go yeah, okay right so here we are about to start there's no discussion of hey does somebody have the upbeat or oh, is no. there an upbeat so we immediately start and it sounds atonal like oh, we're com God. we're a hundred percent off from the beginning like the first note uh -huh. we're off uh -huh. and 
so we're trying to make our way through this repeat, all the repeats too, without knowing how it's going and also not just so lost. And I remember, I remember the feeling in my stomach just completely dropping and looking out into the audience and seeing all of these people who had shown up and their faces were just like, uh. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, They're just so confused. Yeah. So we did that, and that happened with both of the pieces. Oh, God. Okay? Oh, and so, get, oh. so, yeah. And so we finally take a break, and then, you know, violas and cellos play these beautiful movements of Bach, and then we basically said, we're going to play these Puccinis again, because... We like no them one, so much. <laughs> well, and nobody actually knows how they sound. Yeah. So we'll right. play them again, and the audience is going to think that they're two different pieces, because we <laughs> could actually start together this time. Yeah. And so that was the concert. Whoa. So that was my hour-long experience being new to the gig scene. And now I know to never just, unless I know the contractor and they do this all the time. Yeah. Now I know. Well, and also, as you say, like, there's now iPads with Wi-Fi. So if you're in a pinch, you can really, yeah. But this is like, I was not expecting this story. Like, I was expecting, this ended up being like either my worst nightmare as a musician or like a train crash happening in slow motion because it's just like at every turn something went wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I think the worst part of it was when you're packing up and people come and they say, thank you so much for coming. We enjoyed it so much. You just know that they're just being really nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I've never felt so embarrassed in my entire life, I think. Wow. It was pretty bad. But you know, now we look back on it and laugh and it's not going to happen again. And it's fine. Yeah. It was not Carnegie Hall. People had not bought tickets, you know, so it was okay in that sense. But I would not do that again. (laughs) You still got paid, right? Oh, yes. yes. Okay, at least. So it was okay. And she was really apologetic. You know, she took responsibility for it. So there was no hard feelings or anything. It was just... Yeah, but it just seems like she could have asked for help. And she never accepted the help even when it was... It just... I mean, not to put her in a... You know, not to put her in a bad light, but it just is like, huh, (laughs) this could have been prevented, but it wasn't. Yeah. Yes. So there you go. Wow. Just hope it never happens to you. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Well, thanks for... For sharing that nightmare of a story. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I hope people are entertained by it. Oh, certainly. Let's let's see. Yeah, uh, I think that definitely takes the cake with the baking pun intended. Oh, I see what you did there. That's yeah. good. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, can you tell me about Miso? Okay. Well, Miso is my family cat. He is the a cat. cat that I, a cat. So I grew up with cats. My parents loved cats, especially my mom. And so we had cats growing up and most of them had food themed names. Mm -hmm. So when I was born, we had sushi, which I know you have sushi. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great name. It's the best name for a cat. Yeah. Hi, sushi. Yeah. She's right next to me. (laughs) So we had sushi and we had sashi, short for Mm -hmm. sashimi. Right. People don't know I'm half Japanese. So there's this Asian theme going on. And then we had Rocky, which actually doesn't have a real food theme. But Rocky Road he, ice cream, maybe? Yeah. Probably not the. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was a Maine coon. So if anybody <gasps> knows what that looked like, they're, you know, beautiful they're, big cats. They're so sweet, too. They're so sweet. They're and wonderful cats. The yeah. person we got him from, I think she was a breeder, but I'm from Colorado, mm-hmm. lived near the Rocky Mountains. So she lived up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And it was actually kind of crazy because there are 
outdoor cats, like they like the wilderness. Yeah. And she actually had this really cool enclosed outdoor space for them uh-huh. with like trees and stuff that they could climb. It was really interesting. Oh, cool. Anyway, yeah. so because we got him from the Rocky Mountains, he was Rocky. And then Rocky unfortunately passed away very early. Oh. And so we got Miso. Uh-huh. No, actually, I don't remember. Down the we line. We got Miso somewhere down the line. Yeah. And Miso is on Miso Soup. And Miso is a ragdoll cat. And ragdolls, they are known for being very fluffy, white, and having really big blue eyes. And they're also called ragdolls because they're lap cats. And they're so floppy that when you pick them up, they just go limp. Yes, that's a ragdoll. And he is a flame ragdoll, which means that he's kind of rare looking and he has orange ears and an orange tail instead of a darker face, which a lot of them have. So because he had that miso coloring, his name is Miso. Right. Right. So we got Miso when I was seven, I guess. And he's still alive. So he's coming up on his 21st birthday. That is insane for a cat. And how is his health? It's great. And there was maybe three years ago, we thought we were going to lose him. Mm -hmm. And we were going to take him to the vet. And the vet that we were with had retired and it was closed. And in Boulder, where I'm from, there happened to be a veterinary clinic called Uniquely Cats. And Dr. Fern runs it. And it's only for cats. And when we went in, it was not a typical veterinary office in Mm -hmm. the sense that it didn't feel like this white, sterile, cold place. It was just a very warm area to be in. And so Misa was in there with us and he gets like very upset as most animals do in the vet. So, you know, he's already not feeling good. We think he's going to die. And he's also being put in this stressful environment. And instead of looking at him first, she has like this consultation with us. Mm-hmm. And she's asking us what we feed him and all this other information. And sometimes, I don't know, especially in Boulder, which is a very like hippie place, new age, you get used to maybe rolling your eyes a bit and being like, can you just help my animal here? Right. You know, right. but she was not pushy in, in terms of selling anything, which Mm -hmm. first thing is like a good sign, right? And so she basically just said, well, the fact that you're feeding them kibble and things like that is not good because Mm -hmm. cats are not supposed to eat any carbohydrate, any grains. They're carnivores. And so she basically just put him on a completely new diet and said, first thing first, do this. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to give him any medication. I'm giving you a pamphlet of many different types of foods that you can try. They're all 100% meat. He's going to be fussy. Too bad your alpha feed him what you want Mm -hmm. he was fine and he ended up having to have a little bit of extra care because he had hyperthyroidism so we had to take care of that but he's okay and that was three years ago and he's fine we literally thought we were going to put him down yeah because he was giving off all the signs that this cat is no longer yeah Yeah. but he's been fine the only thing is he has bad arthritis in his hips oh (laughs) and so when he and we have wood floors right and he's so when he walks he kind of creaks and then his feet just kind of like slip around. Oh no! But he he makes it. He gets where he needs to go. Okay. He has us. We can pick him up. He has a perch that goes right next to the kitchen island so he's always sitting with us when we eat. And he's happy. He's creaky but he's happy. (laughs) And he he is showing no signs of wanting to pass on anytime soon. That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we'll see, you know, I was kind of talking to my dad that when he decides to go, it'll be sad, obviously, but it'll be his choice because he's lived so long. Absolutely. I think that's the right way of looking at it, too. I can only just hope that Sushi will live that long. I mean, like, because it will be so hard for me to part with her. But yeah, as I should say, when she decides to, it's time. But yeah, they're special. Yeah. You know, they're a companion. So yeah, but he's always been that really weird cat. He used to sit on the bathroom vanity mm-hmm. and demand loudly that we give him water in a Dixie cup, mm-hmm. which then he would use his nails to pick up under the lip of the cup and pick it up and drink out of it. Whoa, no way. Yeah, like weird things like that. On the perch, if we're not giving him enough attention, he'll reach out and he'll, you know, like prod swatties. us. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, demand attention. Oh. He sits next to my mom when she practices piano on the bench. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's this, like, very special yeah. individual. Oh, yes. Yeah. I want to meet me so. Oh, he's sweet. He's fluffy, white, big blue eyes. Oh. And just very, he's also now deaf and has no teeth. <laughs> oh, <no>. so, <laughs> so, you know, he meows quite loudly and when he eats, it's a little bit of a struggle, but he does it. He figures <laughs> yeah. it out. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh. Well, sending all the best vibes to Miso for longevity to keep, Yay. keep going. Happy birthday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Are you ready for some spitfire questions? Yes. All right. Mahler or Bruckner? Mahler. Debussy or Ravel? How could you ask me that? I'll say Ravel. Okay. <laughs> I know it's hard. <laughs> Cats or dogs? Cats. Appetizers or dessert? Appetizer. Sparkling or still water? Sparkling. Fan favorite question? Alternate universe musical instrument? French horn. Ooh. Okay. Any particular reason? I just think it's a beautiful instrument, and it's so different than a string instrument Mm -hmm. that it would be fun. I just think it's beautiful. A new challenge. Sure. Yeah. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Pandemic guilty pleasure? Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't watched that. Should I? Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. I am sometimes looking for really crappy TV to watch, so... That's it? Like, one of mine was Selling Sunset, so it's probably very close. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would say not Real Housewives of New York City, though, unless you enjoy hearing people yell at each other a lot. I see. That was a little bit too much. I tried it. But Beverly Hills... They're chilling. It's SoCal. It's SoCal. They're very glamorous and very entertainingly glamorous, I think. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I enjoyed it. Again, guilty pleasure. Yeah. Favorite professor shadow? Michael Willis accounting. What? Oh. Yeah. Expected. So I got one of my degrees is in business administration with an emphasis in accounting. Mm-hmm. So for my business degree, since it's administration in general, we had to take all disciplines. So marketing, accounting, finance, management, operations, that kind of thing. And my (laughs) accounting class was one of those 200 person lectures. Yeah. And people had obviously read the textbook before and they just jumped in and I was so lost. And I'm a good student and I remember studying so hard and showing up to the final in Cora's Event Center, which is the basketball arena. Like that's where I took this exam and laughing because I had no clue what I was supposed to do. So I was thinking like, there's no way, no way I'm going to do accounting. I was so lost all the time. And I went into finance instead. But as a finance major, you have to take corporate accounting one. And the textbook, I'm not joking, is maybe like six inches thick. It's ridiculous. And that was my feeling going into this class. And it was a Maymester class, meaning it's a 
semester-long class in three weeks. So you show up, I think it's three hours every single day of the week, and you basically have a midterm at the end of every week, and then the final is the last week. Yeah. So you crank it out really fast, but Mm -hmm. it's intense. And I was like, I'm going to take this class in Maymester, get it done with, and then I won't have to think about it ever again. Professor Willis was the best teacher I've ever had in my entire life. And I aced that class to the point that he actually, like, called me into his office and he asked, why are you doing music? Like, you should do accounting. Wow. And I know I was good at it, but clearly it was a teacher thing, too. Because I went from barely scraping by in this intro class to doing really, really well in this more intense, detailed class, you know? So he just had this wonderful way of explaining things that was logical, but also weirdly creative. Mm -hmm. So... You know, you think of accounting as bean counting, but there are some problems too that's more like if you like to do Sudoku or you like to do number puzzles, it's a puzzle. Mm -hmm. So you have to just piece things together and him giving maybe me liberty to do that within a construct or, you know, doing it with, you know, a reason behind it Mm helped me be successful. Mm -hmm. And he was, so he was awesome. Like the best teacher I've ever had. Well, I mean, that's also like such a great metaphor. You can flip it either way, right? Like if you have a great teacher in music, you're going to appreciate and like music. Exactly. Or if you have a great accounting teacher, if you agree, you know, it just, yeah, great teachers all around is just how they process the information in an understandable way. And Yeah, like- and it was funny too, though. I ended up teaching his daughter violin. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he would sit in on lessons and that was the most intimidating educational <laughs> experience I've ever had. Because it's this teacher that I really admire who's incredibly smart. And here I am trying to get his daughter to bend her pinky on the bow as right. she plays Twinkle Twinkle, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was awesome. It was just kind of funny Aww. being in that role then. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Shout out to Professor Willis. Yeah. Most inspired musical hero of any genre? Oh my gosh. Well, I guess right now maybe Dolly Parton. Yes! Okay. I admire her sense of self. Yes. There's a lot to be learned there for myself and her attitude of, I do this for me, not for you, because I think I do things to please others more than I should, or I care about what other people think more than I value what I think. Mm -hmm. And her sense is really admirable. And then just with all the money that she's been giving to help the community, not just money, but also, I recently read that she also set up this program that allows kids to receive one book a month from the day that they're born up to a certain age. Whoa. And it was a startup program and it became so successful that now it's nationwide. So just her initiative to just help the community in more ways than just here's a check, but here is something that we can really do to help people. Yeah. I think that's admirable. So I love her. And her music's awesome. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, she does it for herself, but it's also selfless. You know, she's found that balance between if she's trying to like just hoard money and just gain popularity and whatever or if she's giving back yeah she's wonderful wonderful human yeah yeah most transformative performance experience the gig no just kidding (laughs) um I would say my master's recital at UT. It was probably the hardest program I've ever played, and I was really proud of how I mentally was able to conduct myself. That's always a struggle, I think, for everybody. But I was just particularly proud of myself in that performance. So, yeah. What was the program? I played Prokofiev Filing Concerto number two, and then I played Road Movies by John Mm -hmm. Adams, Mm -hmm. and I played Sagan by Ravel. Oh my god, two And I think I... 
also played... No, maybe I didn't play Road Movies on that one. But I played... I know I played Sagan, I know I played Prokofiev, and then I played Mozart Sonata K303. So a short two-movement uh-huh. sonata. But the Prokofiev was what I was really, really worried about. Mm-hmm. But I... It was also one of the first times I would study with Brian Lewis at University of Texas. And he was really helpful in me getting out of my head. Mm-hmm. And how can listening to the orchestra part or listening to other parts really help you play? And then not only play, but calm you down. Yes. And I had a really great pianist who I worked with, Shin, and he was so on board with that whole concept, too, that it really helped me. And it obviously helped me become a better chamber musician. Yes. Because yeah. it was the first time, too, somebody had just said, well, do you hear what's going on? Like, can that ground you? Can that make you feel more comfortable? And it did. And it was this light bulb moment of, like, how have I not done this before? Like, how am I just realizing that this is a thing? So, right. yeah. Desert Island piece of any genre? Ravel String Quartet. <gasps> oh, nice. Yeah. It's a good one. It's, yeah, it's it's fine. Do no, you enjoy I love it. playing the second part on that? I love it. Okay. Yeah, I think it's so fun. Okay. I get such a big kick out of it. Yeah. I just admire second violinists in that role because it feels like it's harder than the first violin part. Yeah. I, but I, you're I think, always yeah. like making all the shapes and I'm, you know, gesticulating here, but like you're creating the atmosphere, but then also all this like flurry and inner emotion that the violin on top is just like da 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 you know, like yeah, doing and a simple it, tune. I, yeah. yeah, and I feel like you're like, okay, you're there, got you there, stay there, go there, okay. I've got you here. We're here. Go there. Okay, I'm going to leave you alone now, and I'm going to do my own thing. Okay, I'm done now. How are you doing? Oh, you need help? Okay, I've got you. You're fine. Okay, you guys play together now. I'm going to leave you there. Stay there. Keep doing your thing. I'm going to go here. You know, I feel like that's the second violinist role, where you're just, like, helping everybody else, and you have to, like, trust that you put them in the right spot, Yeah. that then you, like, play your thing, but then you're immediately helping. And it's just really fun. Yeah. It's fun to always be doing that. I don't know. I, I like it. No, no thanks for personifying what it feels like to be a second violin. That <laughs> yeah, was amazing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We are done with the Spitfire questions. Congratulations. Those are fun. Thank yeah. you for doing those. I of like course. that. <laughs> Snaps for Patty. <laughs> I still need a... If anyone wants to buy me a slide whistle, <laughs> mine's a little bit not, I think it's losing some steam. It coughed a little bit at the it did. there, it but did. it's okay. You got it. it wor- you worked on it. It's fine. Either it's my technique. I don't know. It could be both. Mm-mm, but mm-mm, it was about a never. $7. Yeah, it's not very expensive. <laughs> Anyway, Marisa, can you walk me through your musical origin story? How did you discover music? When did you discover the violin? When did you know that it was your path in life? And where are you today? Okay, well, violin was not necessarily my choice. My okay. Well, so both of my parents are musicians. My mom's a pianist and my dad is a bassoonist. And my mom used to teach music appreciation in Denver at CU Denver. And she would take the bus back and forth mm-hmm. and read the paper in the morning. And I guess she saw an advertisement in the paper for Suzuki strings, Boulder Suzuki strings, and she knew that one of Suzuki's things was starting kids really early, and she went, oh, well, my daughter's three, she can do this, and so she put me in Suzuki as a very little child, Yeah, and that was just something that I did, and it was something that I liked. I definitely, I don't ever remember as a kid doing anything else. Like, mm-hmm. that was always just, that was, went to my violin lesson, and that's what I did, and yeah. I learned this piece, and now I'm on book three, and like all this, yeah. you know, Suzuki stuff, and I think I was always predisposed to it. Like, I was good at it. And I was always good enough to not practice, Uh but be good enough. Yes. So that was probably not a good habit. And if I had maybe practiced, I sometimes wonder, like, where would I be now? But I didn't. And there's nothing I can do about it. Well, and And you also (laughs) wanted to enjoy.
enjoy a childhood. Like, there's nothing wrong with yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And I did lots of other stuff as a kid growing up, which I am glad that my parents, being musicians, they could have very easily pushed music very hard. Right. And they encouraged me to stay in it. I mean, maybe, maybe there was only a couple times I ever considered not doing it, mm-hmm. and it probably wasn't even serious, you know? It was just this fleeting thought. Yeah. But in those cases, they definitely encouraged me to stick with it, but I never felt pressure that right. I had to do it or I had to pursue it as a career or anything. So I am grateful for them for letting me explore many different things. So I made it through high school, you know, kind of skating by on the violin, and I left Suzuki Strings and from there kind of had a hard time finding a teacher who I really like and who really met me where I was. So I was doing lots of AP IV stuff in school, so I was really busy with that. Mm-hmm. I was playing the violin, but I just had all this other homework and I had all this other stuff that was taking a lot of my time and I was not yet equipped with the skills to be able to balance everything. So I needed a violin teacher who understood that I was, you know, studying and I had all these other things that I had to do and would assign me music that I felt like I could grasp and actually realize my potential. Mm-hmm. And so I finally found one. Her name's Margaret Gutierrez. She teaches in Colorado, plays with, you know, Colorado Ballet. I think she teaches at University of Northern Colorado. So she's, you know, an avid performer and teacher. And she met me where I was. And she had just the perfect demeanor for me to feel like I wanted to play and not be scared about what my lesson was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I actually started practicing. And it was senior year and I was considering a applying for music and she was very honest like this is what you'd have to do and here's some repertoire I think you could do really well and I finally actually took the initiative to sit down and practice Mm -hmm. and I realized how much better I could be if I had practiced I see and I finally I you know was successful in applying for schools and I think I won the youth orchestra play a movement of a concerto with the orchestra you know so it was this moment of like oh wow I can get a lot farther with the work that I put in and I enjoyed it no one forced me to do this. Right. And so that gave me courage, I guess, going into music. But even when I went into undergrad, like I said before, I have a degree in business because I couldn't decide if I really wanted to do music as a profession. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to close the door, but I only applied to programs, universities that allowed me to do a double degree. And in 2011, there weren't a lot of schools that offered two degrees, not just a double major, but mm-hmm. actually two degrees. And music teachers who actually supported that. Right. That was really hard. That's huge. Because I I was lucky and I got to go and take lessons from teachers. And I will tell you like a handful that said, oh yeah, that's smart. Yes, we'll, you know, we'll work with you. It's going to be hard, but you can do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so those were the only schools that I really applied for. And I ended up going to University of Colorado. And again, I was... University of Colorado Boulder? Boulder, yeah. Okay. And so I was pursuing both degrees and was honestly still on the fence by senior year Mm -hmm. of what am I going to do. And not really because I didn't love the violin. Like, that was never a thing. Was Was I passionate about it? Yes, I was always passionate about it. Liked it. Felt like I was good at it. But everybody tells you, like, you're not going to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard. So, of course, I'm faced with two career paths. One that I'm passionate about, really love. And one that I could get a job with a great starting salary, benefits, be secure, no problem. Mm -hmm. What kind of a decision is that for, you know, a 22-year-old? Totally. And I had applied for for masters 
was in music, I basically had this option of I could still do either one. Mm -hmm. And I had a really good friend in my accounting program who was a year older than me and she graduated and I think she got a job in accounting in one of the big four firms. Mm -hmm. I think it was KPMG. And Mm -hmm. I called her and I was like, how are you doing? How, what do you think of your job? You know, and she was excellent at accounting. You know, we'd always studied together and she was just so fun and everything. And she said, you know, I work really hard and I come back at the end of the day and I feel like I've accomplished nothing. Yeah. Like there has been no fulfillment. Like I haven't made a difference. Yeah. And that was a really profound conversation for me Mm -hmm. to hear like, okay, great. You'll be secure. You'll be financially happy. And it's something that you're good at, but I don't want to come home and feel like, like, what am I doing with my life? I go to work and I do the same thing and I come home and that's it. The hamster wheel of it all. Yeah. Yeah. That itself is just as scary for me as going into music and not necessarily having that security. Totally. That's so frightening. So that was this moment of like, okay, Marisi, you have to, if you're going to do what you're passionate in, you've got to stop being wishy-washy and you have to just throw yourself into it and not be scared anymore and just do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And, you know, going to UT for my master's, the people who I met, the people I studied with, like it was just the best experience I've ever had. When I was at UT, by the way, I had also never done a music festival before. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, going into my first year of master's, never doing a music festival. And partially because I was doing two degrees, I had to do summer school to graduate in four years. So I was always, I was basically perpetually in school, which was not fun, but I did it anyway. And so in my master's, I had time to practice and I was like, I'm going to do these music festivals. So one of my really good friends, Sophie Verhaeg, she said, well, you should apply for NRO Mm -hmm. because National Repertory Orchestra. And she had went the year before and she was just saying, you know, it's just so fun. Go for it. And I had no idea. I didn't even do research. I just looked up what I had to do for up to audition. So Mm -hmm. threw it on the list. I applied and I got in. And then I also heard that it was free to get to go. And it was just like, oh, this is a no brainer. So I went again, had the best time, made incredible friends, loved playing in orchestra. It was awesome. You know, I just had so much fun. But one thing that I learned, which I had just never seen before, maybe in the culture of where I was, or I was just so like in my own head was how difficult orchestra auditions were. Mm-hmm. Like, I was just, oh my God. Overwhelmed. <laughs> Over- yeah. I was so overwhelmed. And honestly, so scared. So scared, Patty. Mm-hmm. And just like stomach dropping. And I was scared because I knew I wanted to teach at a university. That's been a goal of mine for a really long time is mm-hmm. I want to teach at university. It's why I got a DMA, you know, and I was just looking forward to that. But in my head, I also knew that I needed experience. And so the path that I was thinking was, okay, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get my DMA. Then I'll have to get an orchestra position because I'm not going to be able to get my foot in the door as a teacher if I don't Mm. have orchestra experience. But this itself looks like it's absolutely horrible and I'm not going to be happy and I just don't know what to do. Right. So I called Charles Weatherby, who was my teacher in my undergrad, and we he had become a really fantastic mentor for me and he had played in orchestras before and now he was teaching at a university, you know? So I called him and I said, Chaz, I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do because, you know, this is my headspace right now and this just doesn't seem like something I want to do, but it feels like something I have to do. And he said, no, it doesn't. It's not what you have to do. What you need to do is you need to find something that makes you unique, makes Mm -hmm. you interesting. And it doesn't have to be orchestra. You could get an orchestra job, sit in the back of the section for five years. And yeah, you get incredible experience playing with incredible people, but is that going to sit you apart from the other person who sat next to you in the orchestra doing the same thing? Like it's not necessarily going to guarantee you anything. Right. So do something that you are invested in that makes you unique. And right around that time when I was in Austin, 
Austin, my friend Daniel Cup, was talking hey, about, hey, Daniel, <laughs> was thinking about, you know, how can we make people more interested in chamber music? And he, I remember him playing, I think, Britain's second string quartet mm-hmm. and being like, oh, just imagine like a story about the stars in the universe happening during this melody. And it, wouldn't that be just so awesome? And it sounded really cool. And I remember calling him almost right after this conversation with Chaz and saying, Daniel, if you want to put on a concert series or a festival or something, finding cool ways to present chamber music, I'm in. I'll help you. Mm-hmm. Like, let's do it. And that was the start of Austin Camerata. Awesome. And Sophie Verhaeg, who I just mentioned. mentioned a couple of bit, she's also, you know, an awesome person. She's so organized, get things done. So, of course, she came on board and we were all in a string quartet together and it just mm-hmm. seemed like no-brainer. Natural. Yeah. And so we got this festival off the ground and now next year will be its sixth year, which is just crazy. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. And so, and we've done some really cool projects and met some really cool people and it's not that it isn't hard but it's very fulfilling that was the start of Austin Camerata and then I went back to University of Colorado for my DMA because I really wanted to keep studying with Chaz Charles Weatherby and there was a teaching assistantship open and I would be dumb to not take it except that that position so I went back so I was his teaching assistant for a while and he is the first violinist of Carpe Diem Mm -hmm. and I remember him this was like my second year it was November of 2018 and he called me on a Saturday morning and was like, can you come into my office today, this morning? And I was like, oh my God, like I screwed up. I did something (laughs) wrong. Somebody's mad at me. Yeah. A student doesn't like me. Like this. Okay. I'll come in. Sure. So I came in and he basically said, our current second violinist has decided to retire. Would you consider applying? Mm. And I was just like, what? Are you sure? Like, this is really, really? Like, I'm a student. Are you sure that I'm going to fit in well? It's like, yeah, it'll be great. So, and I said, great. So what is the audition process? And he was like, well, you're going to play a concert in Carnegie Hall with us in January. And I looked at him and I was like, are you sure? Uh (laughs) Are you sure you want to play in Carnegie Hall with a whole, not only a new second violinist, but at the time a new cellist who you've Mm -hmm. never performed with before? He Mm -hmm. was like, yeah, it'll be great. It'll be fine. (laughs) And so, and I had a recital coming up December 2nd, 2018. I knew I had to finish and play this recital and then learn all of this new rep to play in Carnegie Hall and then some concerts afterwards. Yeah. And I was freaking out. It was like, and it was almost all new music too. Oh, I think the only thing that we play that was different was a Mendelssohn string quartet. Okay. But it was like, here, learn this Turkish piece, this Persian piece, this new piece by Jonathan Leshnoff, then learn this Mendelssohn, then learn this piece that Kareem Fujiwara wrote called Fiddle Sweet Montana where you have to play folk style violin. You know how to fiddle, right? Okay, you don't? That's fine. You'll be fine. And then um, <laughs> it was just like, oh, and then here's our fun book. So when we do outreach we'll have all this other stuff. Oh, and we're playing with a jazz group in Columbus called the Whirly Birds where you'll have to read a chart and improvise, but you can do that you can't oh it'll be fine you'll be fine just improvise a little bit and I was sitting there like I guess guess this is what I'm doing so it ended up obviously working out because I'm still in the group right but that is really where I am now well that's a wild audition that's awesome though Yeah, it was fun. I think, you know, that's kind of how Carpe Diem is, where I feel like we always have meetings where we say, what are we going to play this season? Okay, this is our concert. Do we have enough rep? And then we get to the concert and we're thinking, like, why did we pick so much rep? Yeah, Like, this is... I'm sure you feel the same way, too, where you're just like, what were we thinking? But we're doing it anyway, because it's on the program and people are here. So here we go, you know? Well, and also, I just suppose, like, Carpe Diem meaning, you know, like... Seize the day. Yeah. So it's in the spirit... 
naturally. Right. So I've learned a lot from them. I think the hardest thing was getting things under my fingers because Chaz and Kareen are the original members. So they've been together the whole time and they have, they've learned, you know, so much quartet rep, traditional and untraditional, that they just have under their fingers. Totally. And so the learning curve to get to a point where they'll say, oh, well, we need a quick program to put together. We have this, 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 and which they've all played before, except for me. So it's like, okay, great. Let's just add these six new pieces, which might be short and might be simple, but taking the time to gain all of that library, I guess, in your fingers and in your brain. That was the hardest part, I think. Yeah. In a string quartet, it's not just about learning your part. You're learning everyone's part. So it's like times four, really. Mm -hmm. You're learning four people's parts. Yeah. Right. And some of the music too, some of the really complicated music, like by Reza Vali, which is fantastic. There are just some really tricky rhythmical things too, where you're trying to figure out, you know, your own part rhythmically is so difficult, but then trying to decide whose part is going to help you the most, that takes a long time Mm -hmm. because the texture is just so thick and never being exposed to music like that before. Now I feel like if I look at one of his pieces, I at least know what I'm starting to look for Mm -hmm. instead of just being overwhelmed by it. And that's how I was at first. Like, I don't even know what to look for to help me. And like you said, learning all those parts and having some kind of guidance from experience has been great. Yeah. So what are you guys up to these days? Well, we're doing a really great project called 15 for 15, Mm -hmm. which is a commissioning project. And we started it in 2020. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 2020 was the quartet's 15th anniversary, hence 15 for 15. Awesome. And so to commemorate that, we wanted to commission 15 short works for string quartet by 15 living composers. And that was postponed a little bit because of the pandemic. And so it's really ramped up again. And so that's really what we're working on right now is we're getting pieces in, which Mm -hmm. has been really fun. And we're playing them and performing them on our concert series in Columbus, Ohio. And so that's the biggest thing that's going on. The other thing that we worked on, but we'll talk about it here because it's available still, is this project that we did called An American Story. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool. If you want to check it out. It's free. It's on carvediumstringquartet.org and it's a choose your own adventure film. So if anybody has ever seen Bandersnatch, I think Mm -hmm. it's called, it's like a Black Mirror Netflix. There are points in the film where it stops and then you choose what the character will do. So Mm -hmm. what path are they going to go on? Mm -hmm. And I remember I was sitting with Chaz and Kareen and we were on tour and we were, we decided to watch Netflix and that's what we watched. And we thought, what a cool thing to do with music. Yeah. And so we wrote a grant and we got the grant and that's how we ended up doing this. And what we decided to do is each member of the quartet picked an ancestor of ours who came to the U.S. And we created a story or a story tree that one of the paths is their actual path. Like, how did they come to the U.S.? What choices did they make? And then what led them to basically how we exist, you know? But then some of the paths are, well, what if they chose something that didn't lead them to Mm -hmm. our existence, basically? Mm -hmm. Like, what would have happened to them? And so there are four different stories that people can choose from. It's starts in a map. We've all come from different places. I think Kareen is Japan. Ariana is Russia. Chaz is England. And I am Austria. And then we all wrote our own music to go with our own stories and then performed it. And then we worked with this incredible animator named Janet Antich, who drew all of the illustrations and then animated them. Wow. And so that was a huge labor of love. I've never written anything for quartet, really anything other than a theory assignment, Mm -hmm. you know, 
before. Mm -hmm. So having to do that was really interesting. And it was also just really special to see some of my family photos be illustrated and made alive, I guess. She Mm -hmm. animated them. Mm -hmm. And so it was also just like very special. I think I worked on putting all the decisions in. I think I was one of the first ones to see the animations. And I think every single story I cried because it was just so beautiful. And you just knew that it was so close to their heart and their family that there was just no way that I couldn't not feel that emotional reaction. So that was really cool. That's the point of art, right? Is to tap that part of you. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's such a cool project. And yeah, please, what's the website? Yeah. So people can go to carpediemstringquartet.com or cdsq.org. And then once you go to our website, there is a tab in the main menu that just says An American Story. So if you click there, it'll take you. And there are if sometimes because the animations, there's no words, there's no speaking. Sometimes the interpretation of the story can be left to your own imagination. But if you wanted to read more about, okay, well, what was the actual path? I want to see what they were actually thinking when they put this together. You can also read a blog that each one of us wrote mm-hmm. about the individual, our ancestor, and what actually happened, how we wrote the piece, why we chose certain things. So you can go and read about our stories and see actual pictures too. Yeah, that's awesome. What a great idea and project. Just how inclusive that is. You know, it's American. Yeah. 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 And we really wanted to just show that, you know, immigrants are our backbone mm-hmm. and, you know, and like celebrate all of our different stories. And they are all unique and they're all special and they're all important. And that's really what we wanted to highlight. Right. And we couldn't do it better than just looking at our own history. So that's what we did. Right. I don't want to forget about Opus One. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Opus One is a chamber music school in Houston, Texas that Matt Lammers and I started in August. And both of, of us... 2021. So it's... Yeah. It's a baby. It's its, it's inaugural year. Yeah. And I have to say that Artaria, what is it? ACMS? Uh-huh. Right? Artaria Chamber Music School. Yeah. That was our model because okay. Matt Lammers grew up doing the program and I did not grow up with any chamber music background at all. Mm -hmm. And whenever he would talk about his experience, you know, with Stringwood and during the year and seeing even pictures of him as a little kid playing chamber music, it just kills me. I don't know. I was very jealous. And so when we were talking about, I'm in Houston now, what should, you know, I wish we could do some more things together. And we threw out this crazy idea of, well, well, we both love chamber music. And what if we created a chamber music school? Like there's nothing in Houston that's just devoted to chamber music, only devoted to chamber music and we just decided to try it and like really put our backbone into it and kudos to Matt he made so many phone calls to so many teachers Mm -hmm. and was able to get we do it in trimester just like ACMS Mm -hmm. and in the first trimester we had eight groups wow that's excellent yeah so I think we had about like 28 kids Wow. Amazing. I just, I had no idea. And now in this trimester, we have a little bit more. I think we have 32 students. And we have groups as small as a duo, just, you know, cello, piano. And then we have a group as big as a quintet. It's just been so fun. And we love it because of chamber music. It really makes you be a soloist as well as a collaborator. There's no hiding. And I think being in orchestra and youth orchestra, either you're put in the front where you're never going to hide because you're the leader. Or if you're not as good as the person in the front, then you're put in the back where you can 
can easily hide. And so being in a chamber group, all of a sudden, you have to take musical authority. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what instrument you play, what part you're playing, you're important. The group will not sound right if you're not there. And so I think it's been really fun for kids to have this voice and yeah. learn that they're important and that their voice matters. And also just learning how to communicate. How do you listen, form an opinion, and then express your opinion to others in a really constructive way? Mm-hmm. And then just as importantly, and maybe even more, what's even more difficult is if someone else has opinion that you might not agree with or right. you haven't thought of, how do you really listen to them and really try it and not just dismiss it? Because it's so I even find myself, I have to catch myself in the professional environment yeah, of course. to be like, okay, I don't think that this is going to work, but here we go. And I'm really going to do it. I'm not going to be ridiculous about it. I'm not mm-hmm. going to underplay it or overplay it. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really hard sometimes to do. And so teaching these kids how to do that and then seeing friendships form mm-hmm. is just so great. Like they're putting in incredibly good work, but they're also having so much fun. Like oh, those are some of the most rewarding. Yeah, moments. that's why that's why we do what we do. You're right. I mean, that's like going back to your origin story about finding purpose or finding fulfillment at the yeah. end of all the hard work you guys do. Yeah. Aww. And so I think we're very excited. It seems like people are really enjoying it and feeling fulfilled by it. And mm-hmm. I'm so excited to see it continue to grow. There's obviously a desire for it yes. or we wouldn't have had that. I have to say I'm so grateful to all of the independent teachers, mm-hmm. you know, who've sent us students because they obviously also see the value in chamber music mm-hmm. and the value in their students playing with others and growing in that way. And I'm just so grateful for them to also seeing that benefit to it. We're really grateful. Yeah. So. Congratulations to the both of you. And That's our mission is to engage the community with more chamber music and that equals education. Mm-hmm. And Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, Marie says this is a good time to take a break. Okay. Well, we'll be right back then. Welcome back from the break. So, Marisa, how did you get into cooking and baking and bread making? Um, the pandemic. Okay, <laughs> I right. jumped right on that sourdough bread train real uh-huh. fast. So, Matt and I were long-distance relationship for about three years. And in March 2020, he came for spring break and then just stayed till August. <laughs> and that's just what happened because everything went online and there was no reason, reason to go back. Yeah, and also it was just, you know, at that moment, you just had no idea how to conduct yourself to stay safe. Oh, and totally. so we didn't even know how he would get back. Like, what is the safest way to get back? Can you go on a plane? Can yeah. you drive back? Should we drive back together? How do we feel about that? Anyway, mm-hmm. so he stayed. And my dad is a really fantastic cook. And so I've always loved food. But when you cook for yourself, it's not very fun. No. So I finally had one other person to cook for. And yeah. I started looking at New York Times cooking. If you've ever uh-huh. looked at that website, uh, it's fantastic. Yes. Uh-huh. And so I basically just started to go through New York Times cooking and pick out recipes that I liked and what's fantastic too and I mean there are a lot of blogs that do this but people will comment on the recipe and will say this was fantastic I made these modifications and so I could immediately make the modifications that looked good to me and Mm -hmm. it just became very fun and so that's how I got into cooking and New York Times cooking huge plug there that's awesome and one of their recipes is a no knead bread Mm -hmm. where you basically just let it sit for a long time and then you put it in a Dutch oven you stick it in the oven and then makes this really beautiful crusty bread mm-hmm. didn't have a dutch oven so what are you gonna do when you have no money you're gonna buy things right so i was <laughs> like well, i'm gonna buy <laughs> I'm sorry, i did gonna... that's not where i thought you were going with that but it's so true isn't it like i guess yeah from fountain pen enthusiast to one you know <laughs> 
Right. So my fountain pens are basically cookware. So I was like, well, if I'm going to make this no-knead bread well, I have to get a Dutch oven. Right. And if I'm going to spend the money for a Dutch oven, I'm going to get one that's going to last me until I die and I pass it to my grandkids, you know? Right. So I forked up the money and I got a Le Creuset Dutch oven. So started making no-knead bread and then really loved it and then decided like, well, I wonder how hard sourdough would be to make. And my dad also got really into it, partly because he actually really watches his carbohydrates, like, Mm -hmm. very carefully. But he still enjoys bread. And that's kind of so hard. You know for your health you can't have something, but you love it because it's delicious. And so he did some research, and sourdough bread actually has a lower glycemic index than other types of bread. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. I don't know. I'm not a scientist here. You know, fact check this. But I think it has something to do with the culture of the yeast and the starter. Okay. So anyway, I, like, towed my way to the edge of the cliff looked down got scared and was like backing off but he he was the push right like no we're gonna try this yeah and he bought a pre-made starter from this website called breadtopia because i think starting the starter is complicated yeah so he got both of us this starter kit and we started doing some research into like how do we make it and it's really hard and i think i tried so many recipes and i work 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 and then i put it in the oven and oh yeah i got a breadstone then because you need a breadstone, right? A pizza stone. Yeah. Because you could do the pot, but if you really wanted the crust, yeah. So right. there was <laughs> another purchase. So I keep working and then I put it in the oven, I get like a puck. You know, it's like it hasn't risen at all. Yeah. And it tastes great, but it looks so bad. And I remember coming out of the kitchen and talking to Matt and being like, I'm so frustrated. It looks so bad. And of course, Matt's like, well, yeah, it tastes great. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, no, it looks just awful. I just hate it. Yeah. And you know, of course, that motivates me to do more. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm not needing enough. So I guess I'll purchase a KitchenAid mixer. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> So now I'm, I'm telling you, it has led to so many oh my God, culinary amazing. purchases. Yep. What color is your KitchenAid? It's black matte. Oh. So it's okay. very, I really like it. So now I have that. But it turns out that a KitchenAid mixer will need the dough too much. Like it's so mm. powerful mm-hmm. that you can overneed it, which I didn't realize. So again, I keep getting pucks of bread right, that right. tastes good, but they're very disappointing to look at. And then I did even more research and then learned that there is a common way of kneading the sourdough, which is called stretching and folding. Okay. And you basically put it in a bowl. And sourdough bread, if anybody's ever worked with it before, you'll know that it's really wet and really sticky. Uh-huh. And that is really not easy to work with. Yeah. So, and I, at this point, like, I was still putting it on the counter and trying to knead it and, like, making a huge mess. Yeah. So this video showed me how to stretch and fold. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, this doesn't look aggressive enough to actually do anything. Uh-huh. Like, how is stretching and folding going to develop gluten? I just don't know. Yeah. But I tried it anyway, and I got a better result. Uh-huh. And I was thinking, okay, like, here we go. And at that time, also, there was this pianist at CU Boulder who was posting beautiful pictures of bread oh, that gosh. she was making. Hence, and so, another yeah. layer of, like, motivation, right? Another layer. And so I reached out and I said, I don't know if this is, like, your secret thing, but if you're willing to share some tips, like, how do you do it? And then she has the method of splitting, 
basically splitting it up over three days. And so it's not three days of intense work, but it's three days of work. So the first day you get your starter ready, and then there's something called an auto lease, where you take flour and you add water and you let that just sit before you add the starter in. Mm-hmm. And I guess it like loosens up molecules or something. There's Looser. some science behind it. Something, science happens in the bowl that you don't know yeah. is happening. And so you let that sit and then you add in starter and salt. And the salt also helps with gluten. And then you stretch and fold. And usually I do one stretch and fold to add in all of the starter and the salt. And then I do maybe three more every 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so every 30 minutes I'll stretch and fold. And you'll see like the dough starts to pull away from the bowl more easily. And mm-hmm. it starts to kind of form itself and hold into itself better, which is amazing because the stretch and fold takes maybe like 30 seconds to a minute. Like, okay. You're not doing a lot. Much. Yeah, yeah. No. And you're just stretching and then folding it over. And then I let it sit out on the counter for two hours. So it starts to ferment. And then I stick it in the fridge for 24 hours. Next day, come, take it out. And then I shape it. And when you're shaping the bread, you're basically trying to create surface tension so that the bread can hold itself into a shape. Mm-hmm. And then you put it in a proving basket, mm-hmm. which just helps it keep the shape. And then it proves. And I stick it in the fridge for 24 hours. And then the next day, I can finally bake it. And so then you heat up the oven. And since the stone needs to heat up too, you have to let that heat for about an hour. And then the really important thing is creating steam. Mm-hmm. in the oven because the steam allows the bread to rise without creating a crust because if the crust forms too soon then it can't rise. Right. And so that's really helpful to have a companion mm-hmm. to help you. So I'm grateful to have Matt but this has definitely led to some arguments Uh-oh. of um, so we get you know the bread ready and it's like okay open the door because you've got like two loaves of bread he's like great. He like opens the door I was like wait you've got to pull out the stone. No pull out the stone no. Now you've got to like <laughs> squirt the no you're not doing it well. They're like Really squirt the water. Okay. No, I got it in. You got to push. You're letting out all of the humidity. Like, push the stone back in. Okay. Well, now, if you have the hot pad, like, can you pull out? We need to put the water in the tray. Can you do this? Like, no, I thought you were going to do this. No, we're letting out all the heat. So, it, like, turns into this, like, chaos. We're yeah. so... Yeah, so now, now, it's like, okay, what's your job? I'm going to X, Y, Z. Great, what are you going to do? I'm going to. And so it's become a lot smoother. Yes, but it's more elegant. First, yeah, but the first few times, it was, like, pure chaos. And <laughs> honestly, like, having this oven open for 30 more seconds than you would, it's not going to be the end of the world. But in the moment, no, it you, feels like it's the end of the world. Because so. you spent so much time, like, carrying this bread baby to, to like, now it's go time and you can't mess it up because yeah right because you have to start all over yeah so I understand the pressure (laughs) one of my questions though is you're doing this all in Colorado was there any altitude or elevation issues that you had to deal with uh was it noticeable I have only really noticed a difference from here like in Houston in Colorado in the amount of water that I have to add okay because I weigh the flour and I weigh the amount Mm -hmm. of starter but Mm -hmm. I've noticed that the starter can easily be too liquid or too dry Mm -hmm. and in Houston, I noticed that I have to add like significantly less water. Well, I'm worried it's more that, like, heated, a, right? Generally yeah. speaking, yeah. Yeah. And I'm kind of worried that an avid professional baker is going to listen to this and be like, <laughs> she has no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> so, you know, this is just from well, this is what your I've experiences. Noticed. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Right. So I've noticed from now, I just add water based off of site when I add flour and water to the starter. Yeah. So I look for consistency versus like, great, half a cup versus, you know, one to one. I just mm-hmm. don't do that anymore. 
anymore. And then sometimes I basically wait until the bread reaches 200 degrees Fahrenheit Mm -hmm. to take it out of the oven. Mm -hmm. And I think the time was a little bit different between Colorado and here, but now I can't remember if it was shorter or Like which way it went. Yeah, okay. Mm -mm. And honestly, too, I made most of my progress in terms of oven spring, like how high the bread came, like how it expanded. Most of that progress was in Houston. So Uh I was not really doing it well enough in Colorado to notice how different. I see. You know. Okay. How do you measure the... Do you just poke it with like a meat thermometer? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what's funny, though, is the crust gets pretty hard. So you have to like stab it. (laughs) Really like go for it. And but now I realize... Exactly. So is sourdough bread your favorite thing to make or most fulfilling maybe? Or is there... Are there other proud moments in your baking enthusiasm? Repertoire for just baking. Or cooking anything. Now, we don't buy bread anymore. So making sourdough has become just kind of a routine. And I do get really proud when it looks really fantastic. Do you score it? I'm sorry, I added another question. Oh, yeah, Yeah. I do. So you cut it so that you control where the steam Mm -hmm. lets out. If you don't cut it, the bread will decide what the weakest point is and will force its way out there. Mm -hmm. So if you want it to look nice, you kind of have to choose for it. it. But I'm trying to get better at the design portion of it and like making it pretty and all the designs. And of course, I follow all these people on Instagram who do beautiful things and oh that's the other thing now that I follow these people I'm also learning all of these other techniques to making bread and it's overwhelming Mm -hmm. because so many people have so many different things and some people like really big holes in their bread I personally like it a little bit more dense so that when I make a sandwich all of the condiments don't splooge out yeah but in terms of my most proud I'm most proud when I make a new recipe and I make it really well Mm -hmm. so it kind of always changes because I really like to try new things. There are some staples, obviously, but I just, I get a kick out of finding a recipe, trying it out and seeing if it works really well. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side is if I don't do it very well, it's really kind of frustrating. Well, right. Yeah. So I like to connect the outside interest to what we do in music. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's very similar to like picking up a brand new piece of music, reading it, and either being able to read it fine, great, I can do it again, or struggling through it and saying, oh, wait, I have to practice at this. That means I have to do some research about why this is hard What and analyze like what is difficult or maybe even ask colleagues about. I mean, you see what I mean? Like it's yeah. such an easy parallel to make. And then of course, yeah. the satisfying part is when you actually do it correct or even better than you expect, right? Right. And being okay with there being multiple ways of accomplishing the same thing. And I think as a student, yeah, and even so now cool. I have a hard time being like, well, these people are famous or they're well read or whatever you know and thinking like that's how I have to do it and just kind of like hitting a brick wall over and over again Mm -hmm. but then you know knowing that there's multiple ways to accomplish something or there's multiple ways of looking at something but and you'll still achieve something really great and that it's proof from like seeing all of these Instagram accounts of all these bakers making all this amazing bread Mm -hmm. but all different or you know going on New York Times and seeing that there's like 280 comments and Mm -hmm. reading about all of the different ways that all of these people made the same recipe right but slightly different and they all like it their way way, or exactly that there's no one way to do it and it's not going to be any more or less delicious it's up to you you know it's what you like and being confident about it I also want to tie in the memory-ish or the story that you shared with the first time you tried sourdough and it just was completely like a pancake and Matt was like well I still I think it's delicious right but then you were saying no this is not good enough I hate everything about this yeah and how that's so reflective 
perspective of us in music too. Beside your, you know, disaster story of, of that gig, the most insane performance, besides that performance, I think most of the time there's always something in our brains that are like, oh, no, no, we know there's something like there's something else that we can do better. Or like, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like, I mean, of course there are fulfilling performances and you feel like you have shared what you know about a piece, but there's an endless cap of knowledge when it comes to mm-hmm. music. And I feel probably the same with baking as you're describing. Oh, yeah. It's just the same thing. It's endless, you mm-hmm. know, and it's just there's always something more that you can do, mm-hmm. but also being proud of what you accomplish in the moment. Well, right. And I think that's yeah. where people like Matt are great reminders of... <laughs> Yeah, to tell, yeah. Or, or, AKA the audience is a great reminder of like, you're doing yeah. great in the moment. Like, I don't know. I just feel like oftentimes growing up, I would beat myself up for a performance that probably was just fine. Nothing yes. wrong with it. But it's like, no, it's too flat or whatever, you know. Exactly. Like, yeah. do you hear this? Do you hear this? Yeah. And they're like, no, yeah. I don't hear it. I don't know what you're listening to. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What other mountains are there to climb for you, either in cooking or baking? Like, what's the next thing outside of perfecting sourdough bread oh man well there's dinner tonight um but (laughs) i took a drink of water i couldn't actually laugh (laughs) i'm so sorry but there actually is yeah let's see i would really like to try to make macaroons (gasps) oh my gosh they are so i can't okay sorry i'm having it i have tried i think at least two or three times or maybe four never it's it's never perfect like you can get at a patisserie or whatever yeah that's what i've heard yeah that's what i've heard is they're really hard to accomplish marisa i think that's why i haven't tried it yet when you come visit let's do this together yeah Yeah. that would be awesome because then we're it's better together i want to do that well that would be awesome okay Okay. We'll put that into our pen club. <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have all their yeah. materials. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. So, so we're not talking about, we're talking about French macaroons, like not coconut. Yes. I mean, coconut yes. macaroons are also delicious and very yes. easy to make, but. Yeah. French macaroons with the sandwich cookies. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So that's yeah. like, it's egg white with almond flour and then of course a buttercream but that's the easy part the buttercream is the easy part it's getting that perfect shell which you have to let after you aerate the egg whites you then have to fold in this other almond flour mixture and then you have to let it sit so that then it does its magic but i feel like i do it and then it just always whenever i bake it it just becomes too puffy inside so i don't know maybe i'm not like folding it enough or i don't know we can i'll do some research okay that'll be yeah because i've never tried it because I've just heard that they're really tricky yeah. and to get the skin yeah. is really hard. I'll try it and then Matt will be there. So they'll be eaten no matter what. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Yeah. So I'd love to make those. And then the other thing that I would really like to try but haven't yet are croissants. Oh. And the reason that I haven't yet is because I know that you have to keep everything really cold. Yes. And I just have never been in a place where I can do that. Well, hey, you can come to Minnesota. (laughs) Right. And turn off the heat. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, though. (laughs) Yeah. I think because, again, I follow, like, pastry chefs on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And the pastry uniform is long sleeve. Like, they look like they are wearing warm clothes because they must be in an environment where it's they're always working with chocolate or Mm -hmm. butter or, you know, Mm -hmm. it needs to be cold. They make it look like it's the easiest thing ever. But I know that it isn't. So one day I'll try it. But I just don't want to put all the work in and then look in the oven and see all the butter just melting out of the dough. Yeah. Right, right. 
right. The one thing I did make, actually, this kind of goes to your question of what was made you really proud, is because I watched a Great British Baking Show. I was about to ask, yeah. They made strudels. And my mom, who's Austrian background, her grandmother was famous for making strudel. Mm -hmm. And she has this memory of there was in the house, like, a big wooden table, and she'd stretch the dough to be the length of that table. Oh, wow. And the thing is, you need to see the pattern of the tablecloth underneath the dough. It needs to be that thin. And yeah. so she was apparently, like, the master at stretching it with no holes that you could see through it. Wow. And so I was like, well, okay, it's in my blood. Like, <laughs> let's just try it. Let's see if we can get this, we can accomplish this. And so I made the strudel dough, and it actually turned out really well. And my dad helped, and he made this, like, incredible filling, because he's a really great chef, and we wrapped it up and baked it, and it was awesome. Amazing. Yeah. What did you put in your strudel? He put in mushroom and cheese filling. <gasps> Which was awesome. And what's funny, too, is they bought this freezer, like a big standing freezer, mm -hmm. right before the pandemic. Luckily, because my mom, she tends to worry. And the thing she was worried about, like, not having enough food oh. for the pandemic. Uh -huh. And so I came over and it was just like they went to Costco and, like, bought everything because this whole freezer was just, like, filled mm -hmm. with food. Then my dad will make a lot of food and then he'll freeze it, right? So they have stuff to heat up if he doesn't feel like cooking. And so we just came back from Thanksgiving, but when we were there, he was like, oh yeah, I found some strudel in the freezer the other day, and I warmed it up, and it was great! <laughs> so, so they're still eating it. Yeah, yeah I think wow. it's finally done now. But yes, it was really delicious. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. fun to make, but again, you also kind of need hands. Yeah, you need, a yeah. it's a team effort. Yeah, I think it's just like, it's nice to have somebody to help stretch it, mm -hmm. and then you need the tablecloth to help you roll it, and it's nice to have another person to help you do that. Right. Are there any lasting thoughts you have about any of the following the you know the cooking the baking the candlestick making just kidding i guess if anybody is interested in trying sourdough let me know i'm happy to embark my knowledge of what i learned mm -hmm. so that you don't have to start from the ground up like mm -hmm. i did okay may i ask you two final questions yeah what is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self about entering and pursuing a music career don't worry so much about what other people think about you mm -hmm. and have confidence uh, they go in hand in hand, in a way. Yeah. I've just spent so much time worrying about what other people think that it has caused me not to perform as well in, in situations like auditions. Right. Because instead of just committing to what I believe something should sound like or I believe what I want to say, I became almost paralyzed with the the hope that they like what I'm going to do. Right. And ultimately, I don't do well because I'm too worried about playing for them instead of playing for myself. That's right. And yeah. so it's still, it's still a struggle, I think, for myself. I still am I, working on it. <laughs> but I think that all of us have that I mean in varying degrees right but like mm -hmm. it's part of the human condition it always is like no one can ever be just completely confident about themselves and not care about what people think right it's just a matter of you know I don't know I think it makes total sense and I think it's also balancing those two things together because if you're overly yeah. confident then you know that's not good and if you're overly critical of yourself then that's also not good so it's like somewhere in the middle is the golden balance right and uh, kind of going with it I think I struggle with 
imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. I don't think I belong here. But you, you know, do. I don't think I think I do. Like right now, I can say that I do. But yeah. there are definitely times when I feel like I don't, and mm-hmm. it's purely self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. There's nobody, and there's nobody telling me that externally. Right. So it goes with the confidence. Like have a confidence, mm-hmm. and you know, trust in yourself. That I know everybody has this, but it's really those two voices in your head that you're constantly balancing, like you said. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a never ending. And I don't even want to say struggle. It's just something to be. It's a cycle, of. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all go through ebbs and flows of all of that. I did have a, my first winter solstice extravaganza episode was dedicated to talking about imposter syndrome. So if anyone is actually wanting to hear a little bit more about some of my thoughts and my colleagues' thoughts on that same episode, you can always tune in and check out that episode as well. And my second question, as we enter a post-pandemic world, what elements of your musical pandemic life would you want to continue and what would you want to shed? I am assuming the I, I guess it's musical life, but I was going to say bread making is definitely something that's going to continue through. Not musical is baking and cooking. Mm-hmm. Side note, I think people find me a little odd in the sense that when I come back from touring with the quartet, the first thing that I usually like to do is make a meal, mm-hmm. cook. And people are always like, you just traveled. Like, aren't you tired? Don't you just want to go out and eat something? Yeah. But I haven't had control over what I eat for a week. You right. know, I've been always thinking about like, well, what am I going to eat? Like, where are we going to eat? Am I going to have time to eat? And I'm really one of those people. I don't skip meals. I plan out my day around my food. It's really important for me Mm -hmm. psychologically. And so coming home, I could be incredibly tired, but I want to go to the store. I want to make food because it's not an imposition on my day. It's something that I welcome. So I really enjoy that. And I want to keep musically from pandemic life. So I don't know if this is the best answer in terms of answering your question most directly, but not taking playing for audiences for granted ever again mm-hmm. because having that element of performing removed completely has been so difficult because we were able to still perform and I know you guys did that too where you're, you're recording performances yeah, but, it's but not playing quite for a camera mm-hmm. it's hard you mm-hmm. know and it's when you're performing you're already putting on a face in a sense to just you know you're on stage and you're very nervous but you need to seem not nervous Right. So there's already a certain amount of that goes into getting on stage to play. Right. But then when you're also putting on the energy that a group of people in front of you would provide for you, mm-hmm. it's exhausting. And not having any kind of feedback loop is also just so hard. So from the pandemic, what I want to keep is just always being so grateful for every single performance with an audience. Even if it's two or three people, I don't care. You know, having somebody there who appreciates what you're doing and is there to support you, I will never take that for granted ever mm-hmm. again. What I like to shed, and I've talked with who's the violist of the quartet a lot about this is I had spent so much time building up this kind of like armor of ner- for, against my nerves like mm-hmm. how do I use my nerves in a productive way but not let them control right. me and I feel like the term we keep using is armor. And because we haven't been performing for people, the armor kind of shut away very quickly. And it's been a struggle for me recently to build that armor back up. And mm-hmm. I feel like I have the tools to put it back on because I've thought about it a lot and I've experimented with different things. But it's still not there. That armor from using my nerves constructively, it's it's still a little bit of a struggle. Mm-hmm. And so I want to shed that feeling again. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. and like really build up the constructive Mm -hmm. armor or like maybe the armor changed material right that's a really good way of thinking about it i guess maybe (laughs) if you want to think historically like the chain mail is gone and now you i don't know (laughs) no i know what you mean and are there even better ways to think about it right yeah because what we do inherently is nerve-wracking like it no one in there are some people that might go on a stage and either talk or perform or do something and that is their most comfortable but that's a very small percentage and yet we probably are within that percentage as musicians but it's still nerve-wracking because it takes Mm -hmm. a lot of confidence as we're talking about it takes a lot to put yourself up there in front of people and say thoughts of some sort either through music or through speech or whatever there's a lot to lose as well as there's a lot to gain exactly i remember talking to a teacher once i was with a group of friends and we asked her would you ever go skydiving and she said no i would never go skydiving and she said why are you afraid of heights she's like no i get an adrenaline rush that i imagine that i would get jumping out of a plane from playing so i don't need to get that rush from anything else that's like, right I, I achieve it every time it was yeah. just such an interesting perspective people pay to get that adrenaline rush that we feel for our job <laughs> and also like potentially risk their lives you know they're yeah. jumping out of a plane yeah but right but you know if i miss a note no one's gonna die no that's right <laughs> Are there any platforms or websites for listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects? Yes, there are a few websites that you can check out. If you want to know more about me, my own website is marisafrancis.com. Marisa spelled with one R one S. Again, carpe diem string quartet.com. There's an American story on that website, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. You can listen to some of our CDs. There's a lot of information on that website. So mm-hmm. feel free to check it out. And we do tour and some touring is back. So we're not always in Columbus where we're based, but we'll play across the U.S. So if you're not in Ohio, please check it out anyway, because we might be playing in a hometown near you soon. If you're in Austin, Texas, check out austincamarada.com or austincamarada.org. We have Cello Fest coming up in February. So if you're a big fan of cellists, <laughs> go and there'll be eight cellos performing. Some really awesome stuff. Nice. And then in May, we'll have our major festival. We'll have a lot of free performances and some performances at the KMFA Draylon Mason Music Studio, which will be pretty cool. And we're also premiering a new ballet Ooh. by composer Michael Rose with Ventana Ballet in June. Wow. And that will be a quintet, so two violins, a viola, a cello, and a bass. Okay. And we'll be interacting with the dancers. So we'll be on stage with them. They'll be dancing around us. We'll be having to do some acting, which will be really fun. And so all of those dates and even more, those are all on the Austin Camarada website. And then if you're in Houston and you want to play some chamber music, it really doesn't matter how old you are. We take students of all ages, adults, and Mm pre-college. Check out opus1cms.com. We operate on a trimester schedule. So if you can't make this trimester, there's still spring trimester. And we're just looking for people who are advanced enough on their instrument that they can learn their part well, Mm -hmm. and they can also be aware of what's going on around them. So you don't need to be incredibly advanced just having enough skill on the instrument that you can be aware. But we'd love to have you. Yeah. 
All right. And if you enjoyed listening, be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you're tuning into this podcast. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. It doesn't need to be long. Your review will help others search for the podcast because of its crazy algorithms. And you'll make Sushi's Day. And it's free. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family as well. If you want to level up, you can always become part of the Hidden Behind the Music Stand family by donating what you will on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hideandmusicstand. Our social media handle for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is at Hide and Music Stand, and we'd love to hear from you at our email, hideandmusicstand at gmail.com. Didn't recognize a piece we discussed during the episode? No worries. There's a Spotify playlist with all the music discussed for your convenience. The link is in the description of each episode. Marisa, thank you so much for sharing yeah. this time with me. And it's always, as I said, so great to see you. I'm looking forward to our macaroon date as well as pen club. Uh, me too. Yeah. And thanks for listening. Say bye. Bye, sushi. Bye.